Hello, survivalists. This is The Crux, and I am your host, Casey McIntosh. Welcome to the podcast this week. Today, I have a special guest, Jeff Schock. He was captain of the no longer floating St. Joseph that went down in 2015. How's it going, Jeff? Very good. Always good to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> that is very well said. Sometimes we forget about that. We get too busy. Yeah, that's for sure. It doesn't take anything like a 30-foot wave in the middle of the night and jumping into the ocean to remind you how precious life is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about your history. How did you end up on the St. Joseph? Well, I've been involved in fishing for a long, long time. I'm actually a fish buyer. So we run around in bigger boats with essentially indoor swimming pools built into them. And we collect fish up and down coastlines until we get a lot of them. And we'll take them to a fish processor. They'll take them out of us with a big vacuum and back out we go. This goes on on over and over throughout the salmon season, which can last 100 to 120 days in Alaska. And then another 50 or 60 in Washington State. I've been doing it for roughly 38 years. So you're like the middleman between the fisherman and the buyer. The processor. That's correct, yes. Okay. Yes. How does it feel to be a middleman? I I absolutely love being in the middle. (laughs) Uh, in, In Alaska, we're hired. Um, the companies just hire us, they own us, they tell us what to do and where to do it and with who to do it. In Washington, we're independent contractors. And down here over the period of 30-something years, I've developed the largest fleet in Washington and have a pretty good following. So I actually have to rent three of these big boats in the fall to take care of all the volume that I'm able to produce. Believe it or not, Washington State has very good fishing inside the Puget Sound and uh, down here, I'm a true independent. Um, I'm able to sell who I want to sell to and buy from everybody. So it, it's completely different than the Alaska model. In Alaska, I work for Trident, who is one of the biggest fish companies in the world. And we just do what they tell us to do, when and where they tell us to do it on a daily pay. Down here, if you don't get a fish, you don't get a dollar. So it, you have to have a pretty good-sized fleet fishing for you. And hopefully they have good luck and catches enough fish that you can make some money. And over the years, I've built up the strongest fleet in the state of Washington. So I do pretty good. How did you end up getting into that? Is that something that you just kind of fell into? No, that's got a bit of a story to it, too. So I had been wearing three-piece suits and hustling in stores and selling this and that throughout time. And I was a fisherman. I loved to fish, and yet I could never seem to catch any of the little buggers. Well, nobody bothered telling me they were totally seasonal. So one day, after getting my boat back on the boat uh, trailer and starting to run through Everett, I noticed a guy selling salmon for $1.99 a pound. I thought, oh, I lose that much money in a few minutes every time. I'm just going to stop and buy a couple. So I bought a couple, took them home and ate them, and thought, wow, this is so much easier than trying to catch my own. And I went back the next day, and he wasn't there. So I looked down into the water behind where he had been, and there was 40 or 50 what I now know to be his gillnet boats. The gillnet boats were full of fish. So I went down to one of the guys and says, hey, would you be willing to sell me some fish? He goes, yeah, how many you want? I said, well, $50 worth. Now, $50 worth at $1.99 a pound would be about 25 pounds. So I said, well, what do you have to put them in? He goes, kid, I'm just a fisherman. I don't got anything to put them in. 
So I went over to a garbage can and got a strip of plastic to tie up my five or six fish, and he was going to be happy with that. When I got back, he'd thrown 50 fish up on the deck. And I said, oh, that's 50 fish. I just wanted $50 worth. He goes, they're a dollar a fish, kid. Uh, wow. I took those fish and immediately parlayed them at $4 a fish to the local tavern. Wow. Then you were uh, like, cha-ching. Yeah, cha-ching. <laughs> that worked really easy. I think I'm going to try it again. So I raced right back down there. And this time I bought a big ice chest that held 100 fish. Bought a hundred fish and promptly sold those at four dollars a fish. So the next day I had yet another ice chest and I came back down and there was nobody there. There's nobody with any fish anywhere. And some people said, "Go check out the Indian reservation." And in Washington State, the Indian reservations get to fish roughly five days to the white guys one day. So I went out there and that's kind of where I got my career really off and going. Those guys fished a lot more, so I was able to get fish daily. Next thing you know, I owned a pickup truck, and I was selling, you know, 1,500 fish a day. Wow. And then I jumped up to a bigger truck and was delivering 10,000, 12,000 pounds a day to different markets. Wow. It just kind of grew from there, and I found out by accident. Um, one time I had a big order from a restaurant, and they says, well, we'll take all your king salmon, but you got to clean them for us. I'm like, well, Okay. So I just happened to put all the caviar into some buckets, and I thought, well, why not call the next day and see if there's such thing as a caviar company? Who knows? So I called them, and they said that they did buy salmon eggs, in fact. And I said, well, how does it work? And they go, well, we'll come to wherever you are and pick them up and send you a check on Friday. And I'm thinking, yeah, sure you will, because it was just garbage to me. We've been dumping them and dumping them and dumping them. So I forget all about it until the following Monday when a check for $1,600 shows up. Oh, my gosh. That's and awesome. And this is stuff I thought was garbage. That is amazing. So I'm like, oh, now wait a minute now. <laughs> I thought I was making money before, but this changes things completely. So that was kind of how I really jumped in both feet at that point. Um, the heck with wearing suits and ties. I can wear boots and T-shirts and Instead of kissing everybody's hind end to buy, you know, $14 worth of product, I could threaten to kill you if you don't pay me. It's yeah. kind of a much more of a rough and tumble game in the fish business. Um, people are a little rough around the edges and they better do what they say they're going to do or there could be repercussions. And I liked, I felt a lot more comfortable with that business model after growing up on the streets of Los Angeles. So <laughs> I fit in perfectly for this. That's awesome. So tell me about the St. Joseph. Where did this boat come from? Well, the St. Joseph, I had been looking for a tough new boat, something that would fit to what I want to do. And I just happened to be up in Blaine, which is by Canada. And I looked over the marina and saw this just stout, stout 75-foot boat, 78, I think. And I went over and, and started sniffing around on it. I'd never seen anything built so wonderfully. And yet it was rigged to be a purse stainer. And yet it wasn't saning. So I did some research and found the guy that owned it and arranged to buy it. And once I bought it, it had to be completely converted into doing what I do, which took 156 days of solid construction. That's with electricians, plumbers, um, welders, everything you can imagine. We spent those 156 days converting this old wood saner into my new super tender. That's what they call boats that I use. So after having done all that, it was now pushing into May, 
when I really needed to get going for Alaska, we were going to be involved in the very first run of the year, which is known as the Copper River Salmon Run. So uh, one of the neat little stories that says I'm borrowing money and, and just doing everything I can to try and get this boat going. And I, you know, I put every penny I had into it. I, I, I went to a hardware store, which I'd go to six times a day and they had toilet seats on sale for $8. <laughs> I'll take one. And the guy's like, what's up with that? I go, I'm going to do a PowerPoint presentation, which I don't run computers. I have no idea what that really is, except I knew that I was going to take a picture of me with this toilet seat on as a hat. And I, I did that. And I went to the guys I'm borrowing all this money from. I said, guys, I know you're wanting to stop, but if we stop now, the boat won't go. And if the boat don't go, nobody gets paid. So I have a picture of me with that silly toilet seat around my neck. Was it worth eight dollars? Oh, it was worth another forty or fifty thousand. <laughs> <laughs> so on comes all this extra money and the extra stuff that needs to be done on board gets done. And one of my friends, a uh, guy's been in the business forever, brought down a nineteen sixty four souped up supercharged Volkswagen. And we loaded that on deck. That was going to be delivered up in Alaska for him to have a fancy little car once he was in Alaska. So we strapped that thing down with seven giant chain binders, things that you'd see on the back of a semi-truck with chains that guys used to chain down heavy equipment. So that's all strapped down, and, and we finally get everything on board, hundreds of cans of soda pop, hundred frozen chickens, all kinds of meat. There was numerous freezers. We... Uh, kicked the boat away from the dock and we're going to Alaska. Oh, finally, after all this work of construction, me and my crew of four other guys are going to finally get to put a few miles on the keel, they call it. In other words, move the boat. Yeah. So, um, it was pretty exciting. We took off and for the first three, four days through, um, the run up what's called the inside passage to Alaska. Things went just lovely. I loved my new boat, loved sleeping on my new boat, cooking on it. She felt so super sturdy underneath us, and it was just great. And so we we kept going, and we finally made it to Ketchikan. Uh, grabbed a few things that we needed there as a last stop before you leave into entering the um, Gulf of Alaska, which is a pretty well not pretty. It's extremely barren. There's nothing there but scenery. I like to say. So we enter into the ocean. Things aren't bad. We run for about 24 hours, and we get a weather report um, that the weather is going to be, you know, a little bit choppy, four to eight foot seas, and that shouldn't be a problem. We have another roughly 50 hours of being out in the open, open ocean before we can turn into Prince William Sound and finally start coming in out of the big ocean. So that was in the morning we received that report. And we're cruising along, and the seas are starting to get bigger, going towards the four to eight feet they had predicted. When all of a sudden, there was a couple of chirps, uh, electronic-sounding chirps, and I thought, there's just no way a cell phone can be coming to life. I think we're just too far out. I mean, we're 70 miles offshore, and there would have been nothing on shore, no reason for a cell tower. So I just I thought, what in the world? So I'm looking around for the cell phone that could be chirping, and I hear another chirp, and I look at my autopilot, which has a digital display, and it says, error. Uh-huh, never seen that before in my life. What's that all about? So I reached over and touched the steering wheel, and it spun completely freely. There was no friction on it. It just spun and went around and around and around like a, a, a record on a turntable. Oh, my 
my goodness. And I thought, uh, this isn't good. So I look up and there's a hydraulic reservoir that's in the wheelhouse that you can see your hydraulic fluid level, which is what operates your steering. And I could see that it was empty. So I had guys quick run, get us some steering fluid, and pour the steering fluid in, and a little of it gets spilled, which in now these seas of four and eight feet is becoming a problem because now we're sliding all over the wheelhouse trying to pour more oil in this tiny little reservoir. Well, no matter what we did, pour all the oil in we could get, it wouldn't recover and wouldn't recover. So I, I, um, I, I realized that this isn't going to work. There's, this is not working, guys. You got to go figure out where we could have a hydraulic leak in our system somewhere in this 78-foot boat. That's down through the stairs, by the engine room, up and down the outsides of the boat, all the way back to the rudder. What could possibly be wrong? <clears throat> um, so while they're doing that, I'd had a dream that I had an auxiliary engine that ran a sideways prop that goes sideways through your bow of your boat at a 90-degree angle to push your boat either left or right when you're in close to a dock. Mine was a big one, and it ran off of a six-cylinder truck engine. So it had some power behind it. And um, at that moment, I thought, well, I'm going I'm to start that up and see if it works. Can I actually move the boat to the left and to the right a little bit? So I left the boat in gear and running forward because that's where the rudder was stuck was about midship. So I left it going, and then I started using this bow thruster to see if I could go left or I could go right. And sure enough, it would work. It would go sideways up the mountain. I call them mountains because that's what they were. And you'd jump off the back of that wave and down into the trough and start coming up the other. And I pushed the button and it would go to the left. And I was able to efficiently come up the next wave. So after about two or three waves, that's all, just two or three waves, um, across my bow, shooting at 30 knots, which is extremely fast, and only out maybe 200 yards on a big wave, because the waves are not kind of coming directly at the bow, at least that's what I'm trying to get them to do. Mm-hmm. Across my bow shoots a giant uh, periscope. And I thought, what in the world? You know, we'd, all of us had just got onto a tracking system that year and thought that was kind of an invasion of privacy. I thought, could, this, could there be some government submarine out here watching and why there's just no reason i'm the only boat i know of that's even out early in the year there's no other boats out in the gulf right now and what is going on and so through that wave it just shoots and shoots and goes out of sight stayed in that same wave the whole time seeming like in slow motion yet doing 30 knots and i just thought well that was really weird but i don't have time to think about it i'm in the middle of an emergency so the next two or three waves go by and in the next big wave, the picture of a wave rolling at you like you'd see in Hawaii 5 big wave just curling oh and coming at you. That's kind of what it looks like. And in the next wave, three waves out, is three great white sharks. Oh, my god! Now, gosh. mind you, we hadn't seen any animals the whole trip, so this was kind of weird. And here come these three great white sharks, and they're shooting like they're surfing straight down the wave. And they come by like they're going to be on a collision course with my starboard bow. And I looked over at the side as they went by. And one turn, you could see its white belly. And I remember screaming, you ain't going to get me. And yet I'm thinking, this is all so weird. This is all happening in the first 90 seconds. So at that point, I don't think about it anymore. And I started just trying to really get this bow thruster thing dialed in. And the bow thruster, as you would come up on the top of the wave, your, your bow would come out of the water. So you didn't dare stay on that prop. Otherwise, it could cavitate and maybe ruin itself. So this, it made a sound similar to this. 
as you go deep, deep into the next wave. And as you got to the top of the next wave, you had to come off the button. So in a six-second interval, you'd be on it for five seconds and off of it for one. And this went on and on. So I'm starting to learn that I can actually maneuver the boat to the left, to the left, because that's the predominant wave, so I needed to get to the left. Every wave, every wave would try and roll you over and kill you if you didn't get it the timing perfectly. So this is all happening so fast that I look out, out to the horizon, because by now it just seems to be getting rougher and rougher, and I look to the horizon and it's pitch black. <laughs> In all my years, I've never seen anything like that. What's going on here? And Well, it can go one way or it can go the other. Unfortunately for me, it was not going to become a calm, beautiful lake-like day. It was going to get rough. At this point, we started doing SOS messages through the radios. Um, we thought we heard somebody respond back, but it was, they were so far out we couldn't really tell. Um, and so that was the end of that. But we kept yelling, you know, SOS, Mayday, Mayday on different radio channels. Meanwhile, I'm sliding back and forth in the wheelhouse so badly that you could break your ribs at any point. I remember doing the splits, and I'm a big guy who should never do the splits and laughing because, you know, the floor was covered in oil. And so we got all that handled, and I'm doing this left right light thing with the little tiny switch that runs the bow thruster as the waves continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger to the point of 15 feet. Um, they were getting at that point it was getting pretty scary one of the crew says jeff is this as dangerous as it seems i mean is this as critical as it seems this is well good if you believe in god it's a good time to pray because i got nothing man and if you if you don't believe in god you might as well pray at that point you might as well too this is the time to both start believing buddy <laughs> so uh you know things got kind of quiet around the boat at one point they said where's the emergency tape for the for friction hydraulics i thought oh did we find something you know so 20 30 minutes and it's just getting worse and worse I said, so what's going on in the repair they go what repair I go, well, you, we're asking for the emergency tape they go well that was just in case we found anything we never did oh oh no so we're going and we're trying to figure this wave thing out and the waves just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger now, if you walk into your average Safeway or Lowe's Hardware and look up, that's approximately 30 feet from where you're standing to the top of the roof. That's how big the waves became. Wow. Each one trying to kill us. Each one individually, you could name them. And it wouldn't be nice names as they're trying to crush your boat and send you sideways. And if we got sideways, the it's next over. wave would just roll you over. So we're fighting that and fighting that. And all of a sudden, over the radio, uh, St. Joseph, St. Joseph, this is Coast Guard Cordova. And I'm like, you're kidding me. Uh, really? Uh, hi, you know, I couldn't even possibly look at my radio. I couldn't look at my computers. The rough, the, the violence inside the boat was so intense. But so I wrapped the microphone around my neck as I'm trying to drive this button thing back and forth to go left to these ways. And they're like, uh, so we're coming around Kayak Island. Is it true the waves are 68 feet? And I said, no, they're 20, 25, some occasional 30s. Oh, oh, okay. So then they get on top of me and they start hovering over us for a couple hours. At one point, they decided to send a guy down. And once they got them to us, they were going to try, and I don't know what they were going to try to do. I guess lift us all back to the helicopter one at a time. Uh -huh. 
So as they send the guy down, we have big rigging, cables running everywhere. Um, they almost chopped him in half in our <gasps> cables. Oh my goodness. And at that point, you know, I couldn't even watch. There's no way I could take my eye off the wheel for one second. I call it the wheel. It was really just this button. And uh, all of a sudden I get on the, I hear on the radio, uh, yeah, that's not going to work. We're going to have to abort that. Uh, well, how do you want to proceed? And I said, well, I don't know these waters at all. Uh, well, you got any plan B's for me? And so they came back at us in about 10 minutes on the radio and said, um, we're running out of fuel. And you're 10 miles from the beach and drifting quickly. Um, we need to know what you want to do. I said, well, I can imagine no scenario where it's a good idea to leave a boat because that's almost a religion. When you leave your boat, inevitably the boat is found floating and you're just dead. But the helicopter is now saying they're going to leave. And I had separation anxiety that is unimaginable. If you're going to leave, we're going to die out here. For sure. It was already so exhausted from trying to stand and do this button left, left, up these mountains. They were just huge mountains. And as you crash down off the top of the next wave, down into this deep, deep valley in between the next one, all you could look up at is a giant wall of water coming, and it would wash over the entire boat. That's crazy. So they says, um, well, we'd like to extract each one of you one at a time, uh, leave the boat on the port side, and jump into the water. Oh, great. So everybody had brand new suits except me. We all put our suits on, and one at a time, my crew abandoned ship. Well, mine, for some reason, was a year old, and the light didn't work. I'd had it all serviced, but the light didn't work. And, well, here we go, whatever, at this point. Just, I got everybody else is alive, and I'm the captain, and I'm, I'm going to get off of here. If they find me, great. If they don't, I can't take another minute of this anyway. And so I jump into the water, and I never saw the boat again. And I don't know which way is up. I'm struggling trying to figure out if you jump in a pool, the first thing you want to do is get your head to the surface. Uh-huh. One thirty foot waves, you have no idea which way is up, down, sideways, or anything in between. That's crazy. It's just thrashing so, you, I'm, probably. Oh, total thrashing. And I, I made like a bird coop over my mouth, and I would try and inhale little pits at a time to see if I was up in the air or underwater. And, you know, you cough out the salt water and get whatever air you could. And, continue with that program and all of a sudden there was a spotlight on me oh they found me and at that point I just went limp um because I had no fight left and all of a sudden here's this swimmer guy and he's trying to talk and I'm so exhausted I mean I can't even explain to you the level of exhaustion and so they they hooked me up to a cable and next thing you know I'm in a helicopter but I've lost everything I owned everything I've dreamt of for six months all my hopes, dreams, and ambitions are gone, and so is every bit of my energy. I didn't, I hadn't had a drink in a long time. We were out of things to drink. Everything else was out on deck. I was just spent. So we get to Cordova, and we unload at the hospital, and um, they just said, "Here, we're gonna somebody's gonna buy you a motel. Thanks, you know." And so we get to the motel, but uh, like. 4.30 in the morning, 5 in the morning. By 6 in the morning, they're knocking at our doors, different officials wanting to interview and this and that. And one of them was a television crew, and they want to interview you, and can you sign these releases? I'm like, yeah, whatever. So then somebody says, hey, this guy stopped by and left a $100 bill so you guys can eat. I thought, wow, that's awesome. So we get the crew, and we go down to this restaurant. We're eating, and a lot of the old salts were in there. You know, it's a little town, and 
we told them about this giant storm. And they said, there was no storm last night. I said, what? Are you crazy? What do you mean there was no storm? Well, we sat right here in Cordova. There was, the wind wasn't even blowing. I said, look, I don't know about any of that. But where we were, it was blowing 45, 60. And it's um, I don't know what else I can tell you. Uh, so it's almost like they didn't believe us, which is kind of insulting. Well, yeah. Meanwhile, the um, Coast Guard people get a hold of us and let us know the boat has beached itself and that we have to, uh, by law, go out and try and retrieve all the oil and gas and fuel off that boat and do what we can to salvage it so there'd be no oil spills. Otherwise, it's a $35,000 a day fine. Ouch. Oh, good grief. So we hire seaplanes and we go out. And there was a fish lodge about 20 miles down the beach. We got their four-wheelers and opened their cabins up and started trying to transport fuel and barrels back to them. And three days of this goes on, and horrible, horrible storm. And then finally the storm subsides. And we're, we're on the beach. For the first time, the boat isn't getting just pummeled by these huge waves. It's lower tide now, and the, a helicopter lands. I'm thinking, man, if it's one more round of these clipboard people, I'm going to tell them where they can take their clipboard. <laughs> the clipboard guys, they walk up to us, and they were, they were uh, the Coast Guard helicopter guys, and they said, hey, we're the ones that rescued you. Oh, man, are you kidding me? You were the guys? Yeah, we're the ones. And like, wow. So it was hugs all around. Thank you. I mean, I was in tears. I mean, you guys risked your lives to save us, and, you're like, yeah, it was pretty bad. And I said, um, was it as bad from up there looking down? Because it sure seemed bad on the boat. He goes, we thought you were going to roll over at any minute. Wow. And I thought, well, you should have told me that. <laughs> they don't bother telling you that. So at one point, one of the guys, the pilot, turns and he says, who was the third guy off the boat? And it was my friend Harry. And Harry says, well, that was me. And he says, geez, Harry, did you see that? And Harry goes, did I see what? He goes, oh, man, right when we hooked onto you and started to bring you up and into the actual helicopter, at that point, they lowered the helicopter down towards the ocean. At that moment, a big wave had came and was pushing upward. And at that exact moment, the biggest killer whale any of the flight crew had ever seen jumped completely out of the water on the high side of that one big wave. They were looking eye to eye inside of that helicopter with this giant whale. I mean, I can't imagine the terror. Wow. And the flight crew was just like blown away. They, and these guys go out and see whales all the time with their helicopters. You know, we've never seen one that big ever, never, can't even imagine it. And then we didn't dare tell the swimmer because he had to go rescue two more of you. So we're like, wow. <laughs> and at that moment, I put it together. The periscope was that giant killer whale. That's crazy. The male killer whale has a completely straight up fin called a fluke. Whereas the females, once they get older, their fluke bends completely. And that's what this was. This was him and his harem and family. He was a giant old granddad of a killer whale. And what I thought were his, what I thought were killer white sharks were really just part of his family. And oddly enough, I, I'm convinced it's the noise of the hydraulics that, that it maybe kept them around or they just knew there was an emergency. They'd hung with us for 10 hours. It was now pitch black, 30-foot seas, and, of course, they can see and breathe, and everything's fine for them. But, obviously, had they wanted to make a meal out of any of us, it would have been beyond simple. Oh, yeah, that's we, true. We, we, 
we jumped right in. (laughs) (laughs) Here we are. Yeah, here we are. And here I was with no light on or nothing. And I later found from having watched the TV special um, that everything's on infrared anyway. These are highly sophisticated helicopters. If it puts out a little bit of heat, they can find it. And wow, uh, I was just so, so thankful that they did this for us. And so now here just last year, I'm sitting in somewhere and season's over and I get a call from a kid that I'd helped train know, four or five years ago. And he says, yeah, Jeff, I'm in Sitka and, and we've been trying to find another guy to um, be part of this safety thing because I want to get my, my some of his credentials for his license. I said, oh, yeah, I don't know of anybody. And so he called me the next day. He goes, Jeff, we got another guy, but you're never going to believe this. You're never going to believe this. I'm like, well, can I talk later? He goes, no, you got to tell him to talk to me now. I go, I said, what? He says, Jeff, I was sitting in the safety meeting in Sitka, and the, our instructor is named Rob. I said, okay. He says, and Rob was dis- discussing the most scary rescue mission he'd ever been on in his whole career as a Coast Guard man. I said, yeah, okay. He goes, it was the St. Joseph, Jeff. I said, you're kidding me. He goes, no, did you ever know a guy named Rob? I go, yeah, that was the swimmer. That's the guy that saved their lives. And he says, yeah, the swimmer said that that was the most dangerous thing he'd ever done in his total career as a, as a Coast Guardsman. Wow. And all I could say is please hand him the message that if he comes to Seattle, I'm spoiling him to death, and he has not yet showed up in Seattle. I've got to say that that is about the scariest job I can imagine. Yeah, that and that. That's just definitely not something that would be a first choice for me. No. Let's see. How ugly <laughs> and terrible can it get? And yeah, I think I'll jump in. <laughs> <laughs> so <Not> for me. <laughs> the helicopter was tr- attempting to rescue you for a while before they sent down the swimmer? It yeah. Like. Oh, yeah. They've been yeah. circling us for a couple of hours trying to figure out what would the best plan of attack would be to do this. And, um, you know, they were... I was asking them questions. They were asking me questions. They were contacting back to ComNav um, Kodiak, asking, "Well, what did they, the, the old, the old dogs on shore, were, you know, advising these kids in the helicopter? Well, well, we should do this. You should do that. Can the boat do this or that?" And meanwhile, the seas are just growing and growing and growing, and the storm is just getting worse and worse and worse. And I can't tell because the violence inside the boat was so complete that I, I can't tell which way I'm drifting. I can't tell which way is up, down, or sideways. I'm just trying to survive one wave at a time. That's all. One yeah. more wave. And, um, so, you know, I'd asked them at one point, do you think I should drop my anchor? And they came back saying no. And then later, two hours later, they're like, well, now they're asking, can you drop the anchor? No. It took two men and a boy to drop that anchor in a calm, calm secluded cove to do it with 30 foot seas washing over the top of the boat. (laughs) I don't think so. No. So that was kind of a um, question that just wasn't going to fly. And yeah, so I'm a very, very lucky boy to be alive. And, um, I'm sitting in a bar. Actually it was a sandwich bar six months later. And I get a call from one of the big shots with copper river seafoods. It's total vindication. You've got to get another boat. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking about another sandwich. What are you talking about? <laughs> he says, "Oh, Jeff, it's total vindication. We've got to get you another boat." And uh, what are you? What are you talking about? He goes, "I'm watching it all right now on the Weather Channel." I go, "You are?" He goes, "Yeah, you're on TV. Don't you know?" And I said, "Well, I remember signing some releases." 
but I have no idea that when or where or what channel it would ever come out on. And so that was a kind of a, uh, an interesting thing to almost watch the moment you might die at any minute. Yeah, that's gotta be really <laughs> weird. Get, it, it is really weird. And I'm able to pull it up on YouTube for people that haven't seen it. And, you know, it's hard to even sit in the same room with it all. So you said that and, was the Coast Guard Alaska episode 212? Yeah, episode 212, Coast Guard Alaska. And, and people asked me, well, Jeff, how did you stay so calm? And all I could think of as well, if I show fear and panic, what's that supposed to do for my crew? I mean, these guys, you know, they, they're counting on me and I'm just trying to keep us all alive. I can't just start, you know, I said at one point, I said, well, if crying for my mommy might have worked, I would have <laughs> cried for my mommy. <laughs> but I knew it wasn't going to work. Did, did, have you had like any PTSD from that whole thing? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. I, I did for a couple of years. I was eating some kind of pills and uh, things got bad after that first couple, two, three weeks. I was just in tears. I'd lost everything I owned. Every penny I had went into that boat. And I borrowed a quarter of a million dollars from two different sources. So I had 125 and 125 in two different directions. And I only had enough money to my insurance to cover them. So I truly had lost everything that anything that I, you know, thought was going to be a value was on that boat. I was just so excited because she was big and beefy and intimidating. And I was going to go crush my competitors. It was going to be wonderful. Whoops. She's gone. Well, it's a good thing you're so resourceful, Jeff. Yeah, I'm happy to be alive. <laughs> One of the side stories to the thing is when we did find her on the beach, we had huge built-in refrigerator freezers, something much bigger than you'd find in a rich person's house. These are big, and they're built in, and they're surrounded with wood. And then another one is a giant diesel cook stove. And not only is it a cook stove, it's your hot water heater, it's everything, and it, too, is built into the galley and surrounded with fancy, nice wood and stainless steel and stainless steel paneling, and they look really nice. Both of those huge appliances had went through the wall of the boat and were gone, never to be found. What? That tells you the level of violence that was going on on the inside of these boats. Now, these were built-in appliances. They're not brought in through the door. These were built into the boat when their boats made. Wow. And those were gone and just completely through the through the wall, big holes in the wall. And then if you look on the beach, you'll see our little 64 Volkswagen look like the Jolly Green Giant had chewed it up and spit it out about 150 <laughs> yards from the boat. How it could ever come unchained, I can't imagine. The violence, I mean, pure just violence. So when the helicopter came, they said, would it be okay if we took a souvenir? Now, I've seen these, you know, Coast Guard areas, and usually they take your life preserver. It has, it's round, it's orange, it's cool looking, and it has the name of the boat that they saved. I said, yeah, I suppose you want a life preserver or, you know, the throw ring or maybe a porthole or something. I'm like, no, would it be all right if we took the steering wheel off the Volkswagen? And I'm like, what? <laughs> well, yeah, go ahead. He goes, we don't rescue a lot of Volkswagens. <laughs> and obviously, that Volkswagen had not been rescued. The only part left on it that you could even, well, there wasn't anything probably was that stupid steering wheel. The, the Volkswagen was two-thirds full of sand and buried and just completely crushed. 
from the waves. Wow. And here the stupid steering wheel was, and it was a fancy steering wheel with a push-button nitrous oxide, because it's kind of a drag racing little 64 Volkswagen. And the funny thing is, before I could even get back to Seattle, the owner of that Volkswagen had already collected his insurance money from wow. it. Wow. I mean, how do you get insurance money on a, when there's a boat accident in the middle of nowhere? There's not a police report. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, good for him. Do you take your boat up the same way that you took your boat up that time that you ended up in that? I do, but I don't go as far. I have sworn off of the Gulf of Alaska, so no more Prince William Sound for me. I just work inside Ketchikan. Which which can be very dangerous too. There's some dangerous water there, no doubt, but not as bad as the Gulf of Alaska, and certainly more well traveled. There would have been a boat around Ketchikan where I was at. Mm-hmm. There was nothing. Um, does your boat that you have now have a bow thruster? Nope, <laughs> not good question. No, it does not, and I can't believe I was you know. But you put one in, it'd be just not cost effective, and it would be right there where guys are trying to sleep and. It's a big to-do. It's nothing easy. Well, thank God you had it the last time. I know, and and I'm really wanting to sell and just be done with the industry. And I'm 61 now, and that's a long time to keep tempting fate. Um, One of the... uh, uh, Every year develops a saying. And in 1996, and I know this because one of the guys made a keychain, it was sleep when you die, don't be a pussy. <laughs> and that was the motive of the year. And that boat, oddly enough, ended up being famous and on TV also. Her name was The Integrity. And that was my boat for 20 years. And it's on Alaska, the Alaska Bush people. So that's where that boat ended up. So anyway, that was the, the motto for um, 1996. So the motto uh the last year or two is if it's blowing going oh that's a good motto <laughs> it's funny yeah it's funny how as you get older you start thinking this over a little bit more and i remember calling one of the companies a few years back and saying i'm seeing typhoons on the water um literally like whirlwinds i'm not running these worthless chums to you they're going to get a day older and they're like that's fine <laughs> I said, yeah yeah i'm glad it's fine because i ain't coming. i'm not gonna die for this <laughs> i'm not dying for these if they were money fish i'd maybe risk it but they weren't and i'm not gonna do it <laughs> well jeff thank you so very much for telling your story on my podcast i really appreciate it sure sure that's all we have for you this week on the crux true survival stories Thanks for joining us again this week. If you have any stories or suggestions, please email us at thecruxsurvival at gmail.com. Have a great week, guys. Bye.